Hey, I'm Alan McGuire. I'm Sarah Marie Griffin. And I'm Alan Tannum. Hey! Alan's back, everybody. Alan's back! It's the 100th episode of Juvenalia, uh, so Alan's back. It's, um, it's taken us four years to get here, which is weird. A lot of podcasts are lapping us, uh, which seems unfair because we are the oldest and best podcast in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, four years but, is like 100 years in podcast years. It really That's is. That's true. Yeah. You know, and like uh, 100 episodes is like an eon in like mystery show years. Do you know? Yeah. Like That's true. We're kicking around a minute. We're really more of a boutique offering. Yeah. We are. Yeah. It's, a, it's a specialized. Artisanal. Um, artisanal. Yeah. We have a sourdough starter, which was our fifth element episode with the three of us. And now here oh, we are. Yeah. Refreshing our sourdough starter 100 episodes later with the three of us again. Holy shit, we've been feeding, oh, we're feeding it. Yeah. yeah. Feeding it uh, bits of pop culture and personal stories and crack. Yeah, feeding like, our lives essentially and the lives of our guests. Yeah. <laughs> For content. Four, years. Four yeah. years is ages. I'm kind of surprised at like how long it feels and then also it doesn't really feel like it had been that long a time actually doing it. Yeah, it's a lot of years, weird time wise, anyway. Yeah, the wobbly years, you know, and like, I had just emigrated home from the States and you emigrated in then only two, you're nearly two years gone, are you, Alan, or is it I'm like a year and a bit. I'm like 14 months now, yeah. Yeah, 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 that makes sense because you were in, you you left in like spring. So, um, it's weird, isn't it? Like lives kind of ebb and flow in that time in a pretty pretty real way. But I'm still here. Yay! Yay. Our rock, rock. our fulcrum. Alan yeah. actually means rock in Welsh. So yeah, there you go. There you go. That's cool. Yeah. Mm. I think he would be a rock type Pokemon. I do, I do think that. Yeah, I'm not definitely not a magic type or. Yeah, but that's not shit talking yeah. yourself either. No, because... I mean I used to be snaky as fuck. So I used to be a grass type. So, uh, definitely a teacher's pet, but um, no. Adam, what type are you? What 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 type? Pokemon is? type. Well, no, Pokemon, Pokemon type. type. Sorry, yeah, mystery. Yeah. This, uh, I don't know. I I think I would probably like to be. I really just like the cute normal ones, like Jigglypuff and stuff, mm. or a Clefairy. I, but is that fairy type? But well, I feel like there's not enough of. It's not a substantial enough type. I'd have to think about it. You see, and I can't observe past the original 151, you know? Me neither. I don't no, really... Yeah. Well, maybe after Pokemon Silver, I know a few from that one because I played a that. Handful, a smattering. That's before they decided they were like, this is a lamp Pokemon. Fuck oh, you. Or, this is an ice cream. <laughs> Get like, it. No, it's not. That's not a Pokemon. It's an ice cream. Fuck you, Slero. Go away. You know? What type are you? You're just going to melt. How are you uh, going to defeat a Charizard? The Neki, you're like, yeah. Like, they're not even designed to go against the big boys. You know, no, they're really small decorative dopes, and I don't observe them. I will not allow them on my team. I'd like to be one of the original legendary birds. Yeah, big boy. Maybe Articuno. I like yeah, Articuno. Articuno's fucking bomb, man. But that's not a type. But look, I'll, I'll get back to you on that because I actually just Do, don't. Ice, have a think about it. Yeah. Articuno is an ice type. Ice type. Maybe ice, because I sometimes have psychic moves, and I like psychic Pokemon, but I don't think I'm, I'm like crusty enough to be fully psychic Pokemon. But like, I part of it. Hmm. What about you, Sarah? What type of Pokemon are you? Uh, I am. I'm Ghost, bitch. I'm fucking Gengar. Yeah, uh, I love Gengar. That's me. Gengar, legend. Spooky ghost. Gengar is a dead Clefairy. You read all read all that those cool facts on the internet. Uh, it's the negative image of a Clefairy. Um, Gengar has cool red eyes. I love Gengar. Yeah, I love those three spooky lavender town friends. Yes, uh, that's me, one hundred percent. I think they're they're extremely distinctive. I have a little haunter hanging in my room, actually, uh, on my wardrobe. They're really nicely designed Pokemon. They're very cool. Yeah, and they make sense as a group. They were designed, I think all the designs of all the original Pokemon were very clear and kind of clean. Um, yes. Compared to like the ice cream and the lamp and shit. Like, <laughs> it just looks like a visual noise now. You stick a Bluetooth pair headset there. Pokemon. A headset Pokemon? Headset Pokemon. Notebook Pokemon. I'm just looking at stuff in the room. 
Yeah, but they have, but that shit is real. I was at the Pokemon Center in fucking Tokyo and I was just like, I don't know what half of these things are. Uh, uh, roller? Probably. Mad. Very mad about it. Scissors, definitely. That's stupid. No. Candles, definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is there a mirror Pokemon? Yeah, there should be a mirror for Pokemon. sure. Yeah. For sure. Like, probably like a hand mirror, like with a handle. There's yeah. like eight of like, there's there's like eight how many generations are there? I don't know. It makes me feel old and frightened. When I went to see Detective Pikachu, it was like twenty five years ago and I was like, I was there, fucker. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> don't fucking do this to me. And that really put me in my place, you know? Like that's some are we early millennials or late millennials? I don't know, but either way We're el- yeah. elder millennials, I believe we are. Am I? Well, el- el- no, you're you're full like fully blown, straight up millennial. millennial. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you're a nineties kid. Yeah, I yeah. am. And like, I have siblings that are Gen Z, so I feel like I have some of that as well just by being around them because they're a bit younger. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Like, I Carly and shit like that. Whoa, yeah, no, that's not in my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Nearly. Uh, I guess speaking of, of Gen Z and millennials, uh, because it is our 100th episode, which is staggering and lovely, uh, our subject today is going to be cool things that came out the years that we were born. All of us different gradients of millennial, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, separated I think by four or five years each, give or take. Me and Alan are closer in age than Alan and Alan. And Alan. Yes. But we, we, we represent a fairly even spectrum of the kind of mid to early to late millennial vibe. So uh, because Alan is our returning champion, um, Alan, what are you going to tell us about? Um, I picked two things. We were picking between games, movies, TV shows, and music. So I picked a TV show, oh, and books. And I picked a TV show, and I picked a book. Um, the TV show I picked was Barney and Friends, because I really love Barney. And it started in 1992. The first episode was in April 1992. Um, Barney only has a 3.8 out of 10 on IMDb. <laughs> Very unfair. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, I love Barney. It was really The Venn good. diagram of Shawshank Redemption fans and Barney fans is probably not yeah. much. So, yeah. But yeah, I, I was researching Barney today, which is actually really nice. Um, <laughs> so there were three different Barneys. It ran until like 2007 or 2009. No way. I can't remember. Really? Yeah, it really went on for ages. Um, the Barney that I was most familiar with was the one who voiced Barney until, from 92 to 2000, this guy called Bob West. And he's a graphic designer now, which is crazy. Like, oh. you know, when people do loads of show busy stuff and then they end up just being like, I'm a real estate agent. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and the Barney was in, like created by this teacher uh, in Texas called Cheryl Leach because she saw that there was lots of like preschool TV shows that were good. But then after that point, there was nothing really appealing for like maybe like kindergarten age kids to like five six and stuff so then she she talked about barney and then pbs funded 30 episodes of it and everybody loved it but they said they'd stopped funding it um after the 30 and there was so much uproar from like parents and kids in the fan club that they have to keep going oh yeah well i really love barney um i remember it was a really short window of being able to talk about liking barney because it wasn't cool like after senior infants in school oh yeah um, yeah yeah yeah, and I remember one of my friends in school would, like, we'd all talk about, like, like people would be like, oh, Barney isn't cool anymore. Like, I'm six. I don't watch it. It's for babies. <laughs> but one of my friends, <laughs> I remember her, like, confiding in me that she would watch it. She just closed the curtains in her sitting room when she got home from school Aww. in case anyone could see in and see that she was watching it. There was a lot of self job. What a queen. Yeah, there was a lot of, like, disdain for Barney, even among kids, like, that were really young. And, like, my parents, my dad hated it. Um, but like, I know a couple of Americans it. do watch us, but I think my parents had massive disdain for American television as a whole. And, Fair. Uh, Barney was very American. Oh, know? it was. Yeah. And also, they criticised Barney a lot because, like, some people said that it, it contributed to the sense of entitlement that millennials have, which I don't agree with at all. But um, no. they basically said that because it doesn't really assist kids, this is kind of a point that I think is true. Like, there's not many 
high stakes things in Barney, like you know the way in Sesame Street they talk about like social issues and stuff. That never yeah, really comes true. up in Barney, so it doesn't really help you. Uh, like, doesn't really help. A lot of children's TV needs to help kids with like dealing with negative emotions to help them develop. And Barney doesn't really have that. But like, I mean, not all TV shows have to have that. No, Barney is overwhelmingly wholesome. Very positive. There like, is nothing. There's no like grip or handhold there for anybody over the age of seven to get into Barney. No, and it's just categorically not for you my little brother my youngest brother was born in 1990 and he was obsessed um like it had to be on every day and we had the videos which we had to watch as well like barney oh, we live at carnegie hall i think yeah. was one we had yeah. barney live he was wearing a top hat on the cover of the video yes exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah. um we went to uh universal studios in like 1995 or six I think. oh wow and they had a barney live show at that so like we saw my little brother like up the front rammed up the front just like gazing in, <laughs> in the pit <laughs> yeah in the pit not like child moshing yeah um which is holding hands and swinging that's um, so cute oh my god <laughs> with like barney baby bop and bj the, the fact BJ. they call it a, a date dinosaur bj is yeah. explicit no adults allowed here if you Honestly, find that funny you're too old for barney you're, you're too old for in. barney yeah I really liked, um, I don't know if you guys remember, but like there were lots of songs on Barney and I still remember yeah. a lot of them. I'm not going to sing any of them because I don't want to subject anyone to that, but there were songs about like eating fruit and vegetables and mm -hmm. Baby Bop had a song about being three years old that I really liked, even though I was like five at the time. But I remember like there was just the, the song, the theme song, like boys in my class would sing it, but they'd be singing about killing Barney, which wasn't great. Yeah, that's, that's a boy thing. And that was kind um, of yeah. like traumatizing. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. Barney is also, guess how tall Barney is? Like the puppet. Like how tall is he in the suit? I want to say like he's coming up on eight foot, nine foot. He's big. Six four. Six, six four. I was going to say six four. Six four. Yes. Six yeah. four. I'm six four in fucking nice shoes. <laughs> yeah, same. Yeah. So like like he uh, he seemed taller to me in my child's mind, and then when I looked it up, it was actually pretty like like a tall man, a notably tall man, but not yeah. a dinosaur. Better the height of a drag queen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Barney the OG. Exactly. I feel like Barney is, is a form of drag and positivity. You know. Yeah. I think so. I really um also. I looked up to see like if there was any famous people in Barney and I'd completely forgotten, but like Demi Lovato and Selena Gomez were on the same season of Barney. What? Were they? Yeah, they I were on they Barney. Were Disney kids. No, they were on Barney for like uh, one or two seasons and they, they were, it was when they changed, I knew it was, I was too old for it because they changed locations to like a different background, background and stuff. I was like, it's time for me to bow. I'm mm -hmm. eight. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, they were on Barney together, but there weren't that other many other like famous faces. And um, if they filmed it in Texas, which makes sense because I think that's where they're both they both grew up. So maybe it was like before they did mm -hmm. Disney stuff, they were on Barney. Yeah, but yeah, the, I love Barney. Yeah, the two songs I remember from Barney are "Do Your Ears Hang Low" yeah, and well, "John Jacob Jingle uh, Heimer Schmidt." That was also that's Sesame Street banger too. Was yeah. it? I learned that one from yeah. Sesame Street. I feel like they're sort of weird kids' folk songs in America. Probably, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. Sesame Street was also really good, and it was kind of on. It wasn't on or he in the same way as Barney was, but like it, if you were ever homesick from school, sometimes it'd be on, and I was always really excited about that. Yeah, it was very, very pro, very pro Sesame Street household. It's the cutest show. It's so nice. Oh, well, yeah, I feel like definitely it wouldn't be like Barney wouldn't be a show that you a parent would watch with a kid and get anything out of. <laughs> no, no, like. At all, really. Barney also got blamed for Irish kids getting American accents. Yeah, that was the prime cause of that, according yeah. to a lot of parents. It's like the way loads of kids in Ireland now all sound like they're from fucking Devon or something because of Peppa Pig. Oh no, Peppa! Yeah. And I feel like I'm I'm by proxy picking up Peppa Pig memes from friends of mine who are parents already to small children and. Um, uh, I am very glad that I, I am not of the same generation you had to endure a Peppa. No, she's not a good person. Seems wild. It seems buck wild out there for Peppa. I have a really good video. For, uh, I have a really good clip of it of like uh, a thing falling out of a tree, which doesn't, you know, when you see things out of context and you'd be like, that's not real. 
That's yeah. terrible. Like, yeah. I, I feel like I, my only understanding really of Peppa Pig is through memes. Um, That's a good way to consume something, though. I feel, like I, I feel like it's how I've consumed a lot of the world in recent times. It's just like, yeah. uh, this is, this is uh, my filter. My filter is through that memes. That's all I know. There's also, um, with Barney, I remember being a kid before, like, the term creepypasta was a thing. But there was always like, loads of really creepy urban legends about Barney and like that he was based on a serial killer and like that there's a lost episode of Barney and like just kind of a lot of like Slenderman. About this lost episode of Barney. It was basically yeah. just like the menu pop the menu pops up and there's no music and it's written in Comic Sans and then it's like Barney t- saying that nobody loves him anymore and it's just like Barney scaring kids and like eating kids. I don't know. It's basically like there's a, you know, like the, that website fandom. There's like a creepy pasta catalog thing. Oh, I've been um, there. I've been there, Alan. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just basically like that. There's a like Barney has a falling down moment basically, <laughs> and like starts eating kids. There's a lot. There's a lot of Barney. If you Google Barney creepy pasta, just did. It, it's really scary. <laughs> like it's really really creepy. Um, but you can kind of see how you could make a group because I remember like in school people would be like, yeah, Barney is like a really creepy old man in the suit. And I don't think there was any proof of that, but it, it did make me think twice. <laughs> would you like it me was, to read you the? He's from uh, their imagination. Would you like me to read you the Barney creepy pasta? Yeah, I think so. Short yeah. and good. I will give mm-hmm. you a dramatic reading. Uh, Barney and Friends Lost Episode. The <laughs> author of this story is Shizima. This is the 68th creepypasta that was narrated by Dave Beusas. I'm not listening to it. I'm narrating it now. It's mine now. You probably <laughs> remember the TV show Barney and Friends, which is still in syndication, though new episodes have not been produced since 2009. What a lot of people don't know is that the show was originally developed as a small concept that was only meant to have 10 episodes. The show was already surrealistic. That's not, is that a word? Mm-hmm. Uh, with a large purple Tyrannosaurus Rex trying to project happiness onto a group of children who are alone in a building with no parents in sight. Well, the creator of the show was kicking around with many different producers before the show aired on PBS, but with that said, I still have absolutely no idea how I got this tape in my possession. Oh, it's like the rain. It was in a box of VHS tapes that had sticker markings, meaning it was ripped from TV off of one of those late night channels, meaning someone was probably broadcasting it independently. I may upload it one of these days if I ever get my hands on a VHS tape converter. The episode does not start out normally. The children are outside of the main building and going to meet Barney, but the door won't open. The entire first three minutes are the children trying desperately to get into the building. They punch at the windows, grab at the door, and one of them even starts to cry. One of them gets a knife from next to the sandcastle and tries to jimmy the lock. Eventually, the door opens and they go inside. Where is he? The child actor is a collection of boys and girls of young ages varying in race. All seem very visibly shaken. Have you seen me? All caps is written on the wall in large cartoon letters. They seem to want to know if Barney is playing a trick, so they start to act as though it's a game of hide and seek. There are bottles of seemingly spoiled milk near the door. The school doors around them start to open and close like a set malfunction. Specifically, the door in the common area where the show takes place opens and closes twice, and an alternate set door, which is never seen on the show, opens once. The set is visibly cold as the children begin shaking. One of the children looks really sad. I think Barney is in trouble, one of them says. None of them say anything now. It's as though they are trying not to say something that's on the tip of their tongue, maybe for the sake of acting. There was an ant farm on the back wall next to a blue clay pot on a shelf. One of the younger girls points at it and says, our ants are dead. We should just leave. Another girl points out a rotted, withered pumpkin where even the flies surrounding it are dead. Suddenly, a blood-curdling scream is heard in an alternate hall. Four of the students run into the hallway, struggling and panicking behind the stage, while a fifth runs over to the back wall and desperately starts ripping the children's drawings off of the wall. One is of a car crash, another a graveyard, and the third a picture of a sick person in a bed. 
The kids seem to be running behind the set forever until an unused corridor that has never been seen in any other episode, as far as I know, seems to go on forever. It looks like either the creators reused the same set and had the kids run through the hall a dozen times, or it's just an extremely strange, overly long hall. There's a limbo bar in the middle of the hall and they all duck under it and keep moving. Somehow, they end up in a closet on a different set the camera jumps. One child uses an asthma inhaler because he's visibly out of breath. There's a sixth child in the closet who's doing all the screaming. Six paper skeletons. That's it. At this point, I thought maybe they were just doing a children's horror show. The kids grab the six skeletons, one for each child, and rip them up. One girl takes her purple sweater off. One of the children says, I know where he is. And then the screen fades out. We'll be right back is shown with a picture of Barney, but he's looking downward. He doesn't look like himself. There's a visible rip in the fabric of the costume running up the left side. The only real creepy thing about this is how long it stays up and the fact that the more I looked at it, the more I realised it was an empty costume propped up by maybe a broom or something. I feel like I'm going to leave it there. Oh, I'm actually creeped out by that. (laughs) Sensible reasons. There's only one paragraph left, but I'm going to leave it up to our readers to take, or our listeners to take their their journey into the rest of this creepypasta about Barney the Dinosaur. There's a lot out there. So I feel like if you're into it, it's well worth a look. But I love creepypastas. But when you read them about like a childhood thing, you know, it's always creepy, even if it's really like dumb. Always yes. creepy. It's yeah. always yeah. creepy because you're like, no, safe memory. Stop it. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like that's pretty much the gamut of Barney. Like it was, yeah. it was on for ages and I watched it religiously for a few years my family loved it i saw the film in the uci in talent what was the film about there was some kind of magic egg sarah and i don't <laughs> that's the <laughs> that's the extent of what i remember um i just remember being happy to see it and my dad being like this is fine i'll do it for you but yeah um that's good dad. I, he is a good dad hi dad he doesn't <laughs> listen to this but um <laughs> hi uh and then I suppose I could go, I could move on to topic number two, because we, we went dark, so I feel like it's a good time to bring up my second topic. Which yeah, is, okay, we'll, we'll do them all together, so yeah, go on, go for it. Yeah, is, does that make more sense, or should yeah. we do turns? I was going to do turns, but... Do you want Actually, to let's do second? turns, no, let's do yeah. turns. Okay, you yeah. go on. Okay, okay yeah. uh, so my first one is uh, a film that came out the year I was born, which is 1984, um, I didn't choose a book because it's impossible to Google books that came out in 1984 because of the book 1984. Um, so I'm picking this as Spinal Tap yeah. because yeah. it is one of the funniest films I've ever seen. And so funny. Released. And we watched the hell out of it in college. Like it's, we memorized the entire thing, memorized all the extras, all the music videos. We knew the whole thing inside out. Um, I, 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 is Spinal Tap still famous now? I don't know. So if anybody doesn't know, it's, um, like one of the first mockumentaries definitely the first huge mockumentary uh, it's directed by Rob Reiner who also stars in it as uh, Marty De Berg who's the, the director of the mockumentary in the film as well uh, and it's they were based on a Saturday Night Live sketch um, originally it was the three of them they were all on Saturday Night Live it's uh, Michael McKean Christopher Guest and Harry Shearer or Spinal Tap um, and by the time we get to the film they are on the downward spiral of their career they're playing smaller and smaller places uh, lots of gigs are getting cancelled um, and it's just about the indignity essentially of being in a rock band especially when you're in a very commercial hungry sell out rock band like that because yeah. we see like them like they start off in the 60s as a Beatles rip off uh, a total banger as well that their song from their 60s period give me some so, money is it's so often in this house yeah. you know what I want like that is sung often in this house it is very yeah. funny like, my favorite like half second of the film is in that as well. There's this one cut to their drummer from them who's um oh what's his name? Shit. Ah, uh, never mind. Uh but they just cut to him and he's doing a perfect nerdy oblivious Ringo. Oh and it's just this one cut to him just bouncing his head happily with his hi hat on not knowing <laughs> he's gonna be killed off in a bizarre gardening accident very soon. Oh. Um and then they turn into like flower children and then they eventually settle into cock rock essentially um they're basically and, kiss i guess and i don't know if anybody knows who kiss are anymore either but yeah. the joke is that they were like kiss right or oh yeah definitely kiss like tonight i'm gonna rock it tonight is 
is Detroit Rock City essentially. Um, yeah. You kind of can't tell where Kiss Stop and Spinal Tap begin, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's all about theatrics. And the thing, the thing that makes Spinal Tap so good is that they're all actually playing the instruments. Really? They're a what? real band. Yeah, yeah they, they, they toured as well. They played Glastonbury in 2009. On Unreal. I watched it today. It was very, very good. Uh, but yeah, they, 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 um, Chris Guest can shred like as Nigel Tuffman does and play the piano like and stuff. Um, and they all sort of took on big rock god personalities kind of a bit like Brian May. Like they sort of took off of this very specific generation of musicians which don't really exist anymore. Like Zeppelin and stuff as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally yeah. yeah, yeah, like super coddled. Um, always just low level substance abuse of some sort happening. Um, cucumber wrapped in foil and the leather trousers. Oh, that was very funny. The foil. Uh, yeah. It sets the um. It sets off the thing in the airport. Is that? The detector, yeah. 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 Uh, it's just it's iconic. Like there's so many famous bits out of it that it's just it's spread out and you don't really realize it's from that film anymore unless. You were obsessed with it, like the like the amp that goes to eleven instead of ten. When oh, that's one louder. Pop culture, man. Like that's it's, that's yeah, something people say, and I don't think they know what they're talking about. Oh yeah, it's bigger than the film. Yeah, I um, heard it before I'd seen the film and was like, oh, hmm. that's the thing that people say. I didn't really realize. I didn't see Spinal Tap. I've only watched it once actually, and it was with my nana. <laughs> we watched oh. it on Christmas. <laughs> she loved it. It, Spinal it was Tap really is a Christmas good. movie. <laughs> It it just it seems like one of those Christmas movies. It's not a Christmas movie, but it's like it's on a Christmas, like romancing the stone and stuff. It's one of those films that you will always, if you come across, you leave it on till the end. Yeah, because it's yeah. so familiar and nice. I had watched it a bunch as a teenager during my extended Wayne's World kind of and adjacent weirdness mm. period. And when I the first time I travelled by myself, I was nineteen and I went to Edinburgh on my own for a while. And the to go to ostensibly to go to the Fringe Festival, um arrived the day the Fringe Festival ended and was like left walking around a weirdly desolate Edinburgh um, went to <laughs> Tracy Emin exhibit in the Emma a couple of times by myself um, stay on brand forever and the hostel I was staying in was completely empty I was the only person staying in there and the receptionist was this guy who his name is lost to time but he was studying physics and I used to go down to the reception at night and sit on the desk and talk to him and one of the nights we stayed up all night and watched Spinal Tap twice. That's so nice. Mm. Yeah, did not shift him. Thought about it and was like, this would be a really cool situation in which to shift this person and was too shy. But we oh. did uh, stay up and watch Spinal Tap twice, which I will not ever forget because it was lots of fun. It's a very funny film. That was lovely. Um, oh, uh, just in case Andrew gives it out to me, I know Ghostbusters and Gremlins came out in nineteen eighty four as well, but we've done them already, so yeah. that's why I picked Spinal Tap. Um, yeah, but yeah, so that was my first one. Sarah, also, it's your, it's your life, Alan. It is my life. Yeah, you are so, Alan. This is the hundredth episode of your. You are the only one, of, the only one of the pair of us that's been on all hundred episodes. That's if true. I want to talk about how I learned Big Bottom on the bass guitar, yeah, so <laughs> I can do that. I, oh, at Glastonbury, they brought Jarvis Cocker to play bass guitar on Big Bottom. Oh, so uh, good. And Jarvis Cocker I, clearly loves Big Bottom. That's I that's love Jarvis Cocker. Yeah. So much. Sarah, what is your first thing? I have two, uh, like both of you. Um, and I had loads of choices for films, like so many. Um, but I. What's your year? I'm 88. 88, okay. So, um, I mean, 96. <laughs> <laughs> 2001 Not TikTok either. happy stuff yeah yes yes I'm about to make my holy confirmation uh, <laughs> no I'm um, 88 um, the Dublin Millennium uh, I chose a film that we haven't done yet and I kind of I hope we have a guest on to properly go into it because I feel like it deserves an episode of its own but uh, and this was when I was delighted to see that this was out in that year because there were a couple of bangers from this year like Beetlejuice came in 1988 for example. Oh, yeah. um, oh. But I watched this film on VHS over and over and over again until it had to be taken away from me because I was watching oh. Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <gasps> yeah, I have never seen. No way. Never oh, seen. Ellen. Oh, it rules! It it's so good. Rules, dude. It is so good. It. It is. So, it's still good. It's still good. Oh, okay. I watch it like pretty much every Christmas. Yeah. 
It's an again, art. you'll leave it on when you see it because you know it's going to be a good time. God, the soundtrack is so evocative. It's yeah, it's uh, about a detective played by uh, Dennis Hoskins. Bob Hoskins. Thank you. No, not Dennis Hopper. I love not him. Hopper. <laughs> Bob Hoskins, um, who's uh, kind of a, it's sort of set in the 1930s Depression era, I guess. There mm. are there's no. It's, a, it's a noir. Yeah. Uh, actually, you know what? Your your very first line because I've listened to the first episode of Nearly Enough uh, in order to Aww. for various remasters and uploading it to different services and stuff. So the very first thing you say about the fifth element is it's a noir. It's, it's a noir. Yeah. <laughs> and now for a hundred episodes, you're back doing Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a very different noir. So circularity. Oh my god. Mm. Well, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is more of a noir. Than, <laughs> uh, <laughs> such a wanker. <laughs> I'm fucking sick of myself. Oh my god. <laughs> um, uh, Uber Not Rabbit is more in that genre than Fifth Element. Fifth Element, you can kind of stretch, but Hoover Not Rabbit is very self serious in the times when it's mm. doing the whole 1930s depression shit. Yeah, it's the nugget in a drawer detective. Yeah, of, hard boiled, yeah. lives in a one room apartment, is a mess, has a bed that turns into a wardrobe, hates. Uh, laughter and joy his brother died he's sort of having this on again off again relationship with a bartender of a speakeasy because booze isn't allowed anymore so and Does she's like dames do you call women dames or anything oh everyone is oh, a dame. Sure. oh wait yeah, yeah. Hmm. like there's so much of that bullshit it's amazing um, and in the, in the the rules of the universe that we're going to walk it into is that there are real people and there are cartoons they're, they, but they're sort of ghettoized and live outside of regular society in their own realm and the cool oh. part of this film and the part that it was really revolutionary for was that it had real people interacting with anima- hand-drawn animations and it still mm. looks good it doesn't look mm. shit it was done really really beautifully it was done with care like it's all hand celluloid fucking I don't know if it'd be done as well if they did it now because they try to do it on computers. It would it look has to be hand drawn. Yeah, it would yeah. look shit if it was done in three D. It has mm-hmm. to be done two D, and that part of that is a stylistic choice. That like it 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 looks. Uh, it's one of a kind. I guess the only film mainstream film that ever really approached it, funnily enough, is Space Jam. In terms of that kind mm-hmm. of bullshit, but Space Jam came much later, obviously. Um, well, they occasionally in the nineteen thirties they. Did do it a couple of times just for certain scenes, like Jerry from Tom and Jerry dance with Fred Astaire in a mm, scene, and was, Bugs Bunny occasionally. And a lot, a lot of the cartoon but, characters yeah. that we see in *Who Framed Roger Rabbit* are uh, iconic existing cartoons. Like it's a, it's a the the cart the Toontown part of the city, um, that they live in is populated by all of them across franchises, across brands, across Warner Brothers, Disney, and they all cohabit cohabitize with each other and they're like the entertainment class i guess within this city and our detective fucking hates them because one of them killed his brother uh by dropping an anvil on his head which sounds <gasps> funny and that makes him even more bitter because he's just like mm. fuck you fucking it's <laughs> fuck like he's so mad all the time mm-hmm. unfortunately uh he's a pi and somebody comes to him for help um, because it looks like a very famous, beloved uh, cartoon character, Roger Rabbit, has murdered the head of, um, I guess, a prop empire, I guess, isn't he? It was Acme, yeah. Acme, right? Yeah. Mr. Acme himself of Acme mm. Anvils, another fucking cartoony bullshit, um, for having an affair with his wife, the iconic Jessica Rabbit. Um, but he didn't do it. So the story of the movie is... Bob Hoskins developing an unlikely friendship with Roger Rabbit and moving through the world of cartoon performers and in in and out of this sort of jaded 1930s prohibition America. And uh, a lot of it is about learning how to feel joy after loss, I guess. Um, It's fucking fabulous and it stands up. It's really beautiful. It's not to spoil the ending, but basically Bob Hoskins ended up setting the day, saving the day by learning how to take the piss out of himself. Yeah, by learning. Which I think is a very good lesson. And also Christopher Lloyd is a villain in it. Christopher Lloyd is a terrifying, brilliant villain. So scary. Oh my God, he's The dip is one of the scariest. The dip, the shoes, the tiny little squeaky shoes. Basically they have barrels of um, stuff that in real life is all cellulose. So if you dip a tune into it, that's the only way to kill a tune. They die, yeah. Yeah. Because they can't die any other way. Mm. 
because they can get anvils and shit dropped on them and they just bounce back. But this stuff is what destroys them. There's some amazing sequences, like the first time you see Jessica Rabbit's leg coming from, the, from behind the curtain. Like there's a lot of stuff that's emerged out of it's become iconic. And like the sequence in the nightclub, which is pop, the, the speakeasy, which is populated by ca cartoon characters is beautiful. You have Betty Boop as a server and Bob Hoskins has this really famous exchange with her where he's like, you, what are you doing, you know? Like, what are you doing working down here, Betty? And she's like, oh, well, you know, things have been hard since cartoons went to color. Like, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> um, and there's this lovely piano battle sequence with Daffy Duck and Donald Duck, you know, like the black, white mm -hmm. piano, the white piano. There's a lot of really powerful, cool, sort of postmodern stuff in it that you wouldn't really expect. It's a fucking amazing film. It's really, really sad as well. It's got loads mm -hmm. of sorrow in it. Um, it's also kind of like China. It's essentially the plot for Chinatown. As yeah, well. it's fucking Chinatown. It's Chinatown for babies. <laughs> Chinatown oh my god, baby. Yeah. Um, and that's the first time I watched Chinatown in college. I was like, "This is there's something familiar here." I really want to watch. What's this water rights about? Yeah. I know it inside and out. I know it mm. beat for beat, but I haven't watched it in a long time. I'm kind of saving it for a rainy day. Um, Oh, it's gorgeous. It's fucking gorgeous. And yeah, a lot of it is about learning how to laugh and learning how to not take yourself so fucking seriously. So, um, and it's 1988, so it came out the year I was born and there would have been a VHS copy of it in my Nana's house when I was four or five and I just got really obsessed with it. Like really, really, really obsessed with it. It's and crazy, what, like, what kind of films you ended up watching when you were a kid and the selection was so much more limited by like the physical copies of what you had. Oh yeah. So you kind of just like, I was thinking like Page Master was probably a oh, film I really liked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that was only because it was on video and like it really only became successful on video. It did shit at the box office, but like it was just in, it, I just got it as a present. So it became a film I liked because I had mm. it to watch. Like, It's just what is on hand. Like there's yeah. absolutely no fucking way I should have been watching Cabaret as many times as I did when I was a child. It was on VHS, so fucking off you go, you know? Like, oh, it's yeah. whatever is accessible to you, and then suddenly yeah. <laughs> your entire personhood is warped and torn by it. Uh, what's your second text, Sam? Um, I picked a book, and I picked um, The Secret History by Donna Tartt, Woo! which was published in 1992, when she was, she was like 29 when she wrote it. God damn it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what a queen. Sick me. Yeah, no. She's, I'm going to tell you a bit about her as a person. She's really private, but like fiercely private. And but she a look to stopped clocks as well. She's fucking oh, yeah. so stylish. Yeah. She has great hair and she's, I like how cranky she comes across in interviews and how terse she is. She's a woman um, with a three-piece suit, like, she's Yes. Yeah, she dresses like probably one of the male characters in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. A lot he is a steampunk hero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but she's from Mississippi and her dad was actually a politician, which I find just interesting. Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't know if you can hear it. No, you probably can't because I've had it on. There's just a fire truck going up my street, but it's fine. Um, uh, yeah, so she basically was 29 and the secret history is about six group, six students of classics in this like private liberal arts college called Hampton College, Hampton College, which is like set in New England, and it's based on a place that she studied in called Bennington College in Vermont. And there's Richard, Camilla, Bunny, Henry, Francis, and Charles. <laughs> Yeah. and Richard is the narrator oh yeah Richard is the narrator and he's kind of like the classic um lonely narrator kind of like Holden Caulfield person who outsider within the outsiders yeah so like he's not fully in it and he's not from the same kind of like uh class background as them but he really wants to get in with these people and like Nick and the Great Gatsby in some way exactly yeah and he's he's uh they all kind of come together because of a dark reason and they because they start at their classics professor, Professor Morrow, uh, does like private readings of texts and stuff and he picks and chooses the students who get to attend those and um, Richard gets involved and then there's like a lot of weird dark Bacchanalian stuff and shared secrets and um, betrayal. It's just the most juicy book. 
I've ever read and I read it like maybe when I was like 20 and I don't think I've read a book since that I've been like so uh, gripped by I just love it it's great and like I don't want to talk about it too much because I, don't, like, I can't it's been so long since I've read it that I don't want to give it away Do you know I feel like you can't spoiler a book that came out in 1994 but I do I am excited for people who haven't read it to get oh. to experience it for the first time like it's a like I was saying a little bit off mic there you go there's your fucking podcast bingo listeners uh, <laughs> that uh it's a genre the secret history is a kind of a book now you know like the likeness yes. of French which is huge uh is uh, the secret history story you know mm-hmm. the format of the secret history is so gripping and so exciting that it uh sort of takes a bit of a life of its own and it can be retold in different yeah. forms because it's so compelling as to be a formula you know exactly hey, you know what you should you should talk about spoilers i will take off my headphones when you're finished send me a text and i'll put my headphones no no, no no don't worry because no, I, no, sure? no, no. I don't think we yeah. should because i'm excited no. for listeners who haven't picked it up yet to read the secret history but okay. yeah it's i don't think there's any point in talking about like the plot in detail because no. it's there's it's there's there's it's an inverted detective thing so like it's like there's you get presented with information at the start and then kind of work backwards through the book and it's just it's so good it's like it's really hard to articulate it how I've never seen anybody say they don't like it no no ever. I haven't ever, ever. I actually think it's long enough ago that people aren't doing the politeness thing Mm-hmm. where people would be on like a lot of people are very unafraid to say they didn't enjoy the goldfinch for example like i was a bookseller when the goldfinch came out and i goldfinch is i haven't read it uh, so i I, I wasn't I, mad on it see i loved it it does spend yeah. too long in las vegas but, but, it's a brick, but i love it right yeah and a lot of people weren't afraid to be outraged by the size mm. the sheer size of the goldfinch and the audacity of donna to write a book size of the goldfinch um so i don't think the lack of criticism on the secret history is due to politeness i think it's genuinely because it's an exceptional rare piece of work that mm-hmm. forever sort of alters the reader i don't know anyone who's who has been i don't really know anyone who's lukewarm on it either but then again maybe that's just because everyone know who's read it is like oh my god the secret history you know yeah so yeah it's just so good like and i think the publishers alfred Knopf, they um it they rule fancy seventy-five thousand orders for they made a 75,000 order for the first edition and apparently the usual would be like more like 10 so they obviously knew that they were onto something with the book. Yeah, the, your average commercial print run for an author who's kind of just starting out is, is 10,000 copies. Which is just like, it's, they must have been buzzing when they found it, you know? Oh yeah, what a yeah. story like. Yeah. But again, very few books become a The Secret History, you know? Like, it's, I wouldn't say it's a Watergate in publishing because it's kind of a literary text, so re- readers find it, you know? Yeah, totally. But it's definitely a, it, it, it was a happening, you know? Yeah, totally. Most writers I know will cite it as an important piece of work. Like, it's a piece of work that calls people into storytelling mm-hmm. and shows what's possible. And, like, how to do it in a it's so tightly plotted and she's so good at it's sort of depressing but then it also is exciting and you kind of want to be there with them and be oh you want to be in the gang yeah totally hedonistic and stuff and like i love that part of it because like my college experience is very much like i went to dit and it looked like a hospital (laughs) like it wasn't like uh, i didn't have like that it's a campus novel too and I love books about people in college I don't know why like where I had like an obsession in, like when I was a kid of like Ivy League and like all the weird the creepiness that's within like old institutions and stuff I always just find that really interesting and then when you couple it with all of the I was really into Greek and Roman mythology when I was mm. a kid so all of the references to that in in the secret history oh, it was like a perfect book for my, my interests at the time and it's not without class scrutiny either do you know what i mean no. it's, not, it's not unaware of itself it's very much about what it is to go to a liberal arts college what that fanciness means like how difficult it can be to break into in groups people who are totally not self-aware are portrayed as not self-aware like it's a really wise kind of storytelling it's not just like a fantasy it's, like i actually often compare it to the magicians by lev grossman oh. 
yeah which is about a fancy magical college right and mm. the group of the group of friends in the magical college are really not unlike the group in the secret history so i don't know i think that there but there's more commentary i don't know i think it's a, i think it's a smart brilliant book it's yeah. really great and i really enjoy books where they are like my favorite kind of book is where something happens that binds people together and it's not really always a good thing and yeah. like how would they deal with the repercussions of that like I love a big fat book about that or like a big family odyssey book like um 100 years of solitude or something so secret history to me sort of like is in that big old trauma bonding story. yes oh my god big old so trauma good. bonding vibe have you read circle of friends though no you gotta you fucking got it I had some big two short stories for a while, but then the libraries have been closed. But okay, I'm gonna. Oh, you got it. it. You have to read Circle of Friends because it again, it's a really romantic portrayal of UCD that I only got read. It's a it's it's a it's a one particular campus of UCD in town, um, and it is such a like romantic collegiate experience, and it's in the 1960s as well, the early 60s. Oh, wow. And it is about trauma bonding, and I don't want to tell you anything about well it's not about trombone it's about a million things it's mostly gals having coffees in coffee shops and talking but oh my it, god my favorite thing to do but the way that the story <laughs> is executed is fucking phenomenal and that bunch of people who are bonded by tragedy is fucking glorious in it like it's really really powerful and it's a super romantic college story as well amazing i'm excited you know what i just thought of as well when you said circular friends and about like women and stuff um, a part of the secret history sort of reminds me of the group, um, which is, I can't remember, is it by Mary McCarthy? The group, uh, Yeah, so the group by Mary McCarthy was this, that book that was released in, I think it was released in like the 1960s. And it was about a group of women who went to like a women's only college and um, cool. about the, the paths their lives take. And it kind of reminds me of the secret history, just following people through time and seeing like who makes shit of their lives and who like looks out. Gorgeous. Yeah. It's that, in the 30s that's a, onwards. That's oh, lovely, lovely it's time. Brilliant. Um, and it's just like, it was really controversial for the time as well because it was all about, um, you know, social mores and stuff like that. So yeah, miss my sister's energy. Um, the nice thing about Circle of Friends is not Circle of Friends. Sorry, obsessed. Um, the nice thing about Secret History as well is that it happens kind of before the advent of the cell phone. So, <gasps> yes. a so lot the of mystery can drama. work. Yeah, the mystery can work without any tracking. So oh, it's so it's good. Fabulous. It's Alan, you're going to have the best time reading it. I'm really yeah, excited for you. It's literally next to my three list. I'm yeah. finishing the third Ashley book and then I'm reading that. Oh, oh third Ashley book is so good, man. Yeah, I'm oh. uh, Yeah. I, I can't get it. Oh, my eyes out reading it. It's so I have to try and get it. Yeah, it's that's my second now. one. All right. Thank you, Alan. What's, you, what's your second Thank you. Album? Okay, so I was wanted to pick an album for my second one. So then I so I Googled what albums actually came out in nineteen eighty four. And what I got back was a list of albums that I've been meaning to get into forever and never actually listened to. Oh. Uh so it's it's like a, a who's who of like Q magazine's top one hundred albums of the century. Oh wow. So it's like Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen came out that year. Uh Two Smiths albums, Let It Be Better Replacements, Purple Rain by Prince. Ah. Um Best. all this stuff. And like I've listened to all these albums like once. Yeah, um, just to have done so, it and then you forget. But what I realised thinking about it was that all those albums kind of do fit together to form my musical taste in oh. a way, even though... They're like your birth chart. Kind oh. of, yeah, like Purple Rain and The Replacements and uh, like Echo and the Bunnymen and oh, R.E.M. Reckoning as well. It's like, oh, I think every time I listen to those albums, I'm like, okay, I can hear that in the stuff I like. So I feel like there is like a bit of like a musical birth chart thing going on. Yeah. Uh, one song I want to mention in particular is a song called Androgynous by The Replacements. It's on Let It Be. And it's about the singer just seeing an androgynous boy and an androgynous girl couple in a bar and thinking they're really cute together. Gender so the thinking, construct. Yeah. It's, <laughs> That's it's so like, cute. And it's just, it's just this very, they're like, the Replacements write this kind of raucous, kind of like a drunk Springsteen is kind of the vibe of The Replacements. 
Um, oh, because they drank so much. Oh, they drank a lot. Yeah. Um, the which, Our Bank of Your Life by Michael Azarad has a really good chapter on the replacements. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it, that whole book is amazing. It's just like a chapter each on an independent band from when they started until they went to a major label. Oh. Um, from like the 70s up till the 90s. So like Nirvana, the last band didn't mention it, I think. Um, but they're, yeah, they're, they drank a lot and it's all kind of raucous, Springsteen-y bar rock. But then Androgynous is just on the verge of camp piano, like plinky plonky piano. Ooh. And it stays with, the first time you listen to it, you're like, if he makes even slight fun of them, then this song is over and it's shit. But he stays just kind of in love with them a little bit the whole way through it. Ooh. Even though it's this battered, bruised, drunk guy. Just really liking the sight of these two people in love. And it's a really lovely song. Um, and I always kind of wondered how like trans and non-binary and androgynous people felt about it. But I saw a thread on Twitter like last week literally of people calling it a trans anthem. So I was like, oh, Aww, that's, oh that's, that's so nice. nice. Yeah, is that nice? Secret so that's anthem. Song, so that's from 1984. It's uh, from Let It Be by The Replacements, which is a patchy album. I listened to it today. It's weird. Some of it's very, very good. And some of it is like 80s power rock and then androgynous is there in the middle of it so that's my second thing um so just yeah just discovering things from when you were born is nice i think Figuring yeah it's cool what, to see what was going what your on context the was. yeah it's so weird. sarah what's your thing sorry Ellen, were you want to say something no else? i was just because i was listening to spotify and a replacement song came on shuffle and i can't remember what it was but sarah if you i'm gonna try and remember it swing yeah. party banger anyway yeah <laughs> Okay. Been, what would I know by the replacements? Can't hardly wait. Like, yeah, didn't that's probably like their most songs. famous. Yeah, yeah. Paul Westerberg is really hot. Singer. Really is he? When he was younger, like he's the same age yeah. as my dad, so like not now, but yeah, yeah. I don't know, man. I feel like every year I'm just like I feel like there's more. To, I feel like I used to think if a, if a dude was like over thirty five, I'd be like he's old now, and now I'm like fucking patrick stewart man yeah oh yeah like no i'm changing i'm changing my ways oh all those like late 80s 90s like all truck um, guys like steve so malkmus cool. steve <gasps> malkmus is a fox oh my god uh, from pavement i have to look him up i'm really bad at this i'm not sure he's your type but he might be What's i don't it? know he's just really uh, cute and like scrawny yeah what's his name steven uh, malkmus spell that M A L K M U S. Yeah. He looks tall as well. Oh, he does look okay. tall. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is fine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very good. Very good. Mm. He's squint. He kind of looks like Kerry with short hair. Oh, yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah. floppy hair. Yeah, this is a handsome man. Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes yeah, very good. I like how you took a bit to evaluate. I enjoyed it very much. Mm-hmm. Takes a minute. Yes. Uh, well done. Well done. He is good. <laughs> uh, my second thing is Red Dwarf. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, yes. Which came out in nineteen eighty-eight and is still one of my comfort watches. The novel I'm writing is partially based on the structure of it. It is one of my favorite texts. It's a series of novels as well as a TV show. Um, I am aware that many of the members of the cast are fucking not good people. Uh, I'm aware. <laughs> oh, that, really? Yeah, Craig Charles, man. Uh, there's a lot of bad energy uh, around some of those head the balls. However, he had he had some troubled years, but I think he's like fundamentally okay, isn't he? Craig Charles, I feel yeah, he, like, he had a, a drug issue and uh, there was a tabloid sting of him. Uh, um, I but feel like he's a Okay. Hang on, I'm, I'm gonna go. have a little look. I'm very quick, wiki. very quickly have a little check because I feel like I saw something. I got my heart broken and was like, "Oh no." Um, he has a, a funk jazz show on six. Oh music, yeah, he so. was he he was cleared oh. of, of of a rape charge. Eww. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't fucking like. Mm, like, sorry, man. Any of that around you, and I'm I'm pieced out. Like, but. The story of Red Dwarf on the show, like I would have watched Red Dwarf and caught it in kind of snatches when I was, again, too young to be watching it. The story is about a, a mining ship in deep space, the crew of which are entirely wiped out, except one guy who's sort of the lowest ranking guy on the ship who gets trapped in a stasis chamber. 
um, and wakes up millions of years after everyone on the ship has been wiped out. The only other living people on the ship are the descendant of the cat that he smuggled on board. The cat was called Frankenstein. And his descendant is played by Danny John Jules, who recently... Is that his name, Danny? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, uh, who recently was on Strictly Come Dancing, and I feel like is a legend. He... Uh, now, I, I, that's what I thought you were talking about originally. When you oh, is he probably. also... Uh, he just he came across he took himself very very seriously oh dear what which is not a strictly vibe but I, I like I don't know if there's anything bad bad about him so well but I he played the cat um, he's amazing as cat yeah he was yeah. absolutely like he was he was like basically playing prince as the cat um mm. and then so he was the only he was like human because he was a descendant of the cat that was smuggled on board uh Rimmer who was the main character Lister's bunkmate who was also super low ranking and he somehow managed to get kept on board as a hologram and you know he's a hologram because he has a lot of hatred on his forehead and then early in the first season they acquire an android called Crichton and there is an AI on the ship called Holly who keeps them going as well and there are eight seasons I only really like six of the eight seasons um, of them pottering around on the giant abandoned mining craft trying to cope with the fact that it's the end of humanity. They do a bit of time travelling, they've been dicking around. There have been some recent reboots of it, which I have no interest in, but it's pretty much a desert island story and um, it's very camp and very silly and also has moments of being really, really deeply reflective. Um, the books are great. The books are written by two guys, uh, Doug, jo- Doug Naylor. N- n- what are they? I get their last names mixed up all the time. Uh, and then what are the last names? Oh, Rob Grant and Doug Naylor. That's it. And they're uh, fabulous. They're fabulous. Uh, the books are not unlike The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I guess. Huh. In lots of ways, they're the same story, nearly scene for scene as the TV show, and they are brilliant. I I really I don't know how I got my hands on them, but I loved them growing up. Um, so yeah, they're they're functionally desert island stories and uh, about being the last surviving people, and it's just these four guys who can't stand each other, grappling for power and being super lonely <laughs> in deep space i feel like if there's only eight seasons and it's british there's probably only like six episodes a season <laughs> yeah because i feel there's one or two seasons i've seen all of the, the one where kachansky comes back ah kachansky uh, yes late a, couple of, a couple of her as well she's portrayed yeah. by different actresses a few times mm. there's yeah there's a season where they swap out Rimmer, he goes off into a different dimension and he's kind of replaced by christine kachansky um it's definitely an all our faves are problematic show, but I have a lot of love for the world of it, like the bottleneck of this empty ship. And um, isn't there an episode where everything goes in reverse, like a Western backwards? Episode? Yeah, that's yeah. Great. Um, that is a head fuck. It's amazing. Yeah, there are so many little experiments that they do. Like there's mm. one where they meet their opposites, like the so they meet themselves as portrayed by women basically like the binary doesn't exist but they <laughs> in this in this story they meet the, themselves in a female body and the performances in that are fucking stunning um the cat's opposite is unfortunately a dog and he's not very happy about that but that's pretty funny um but there's a lot of within the realm of this really tight world what kind of stuff can we do you know mm. like here's what what's available to us the rules of physics don't apply the rules of time don't apply there's nobody else alive so any life is exciting like there's all of these different conventions that are allowed in the world of an empty spaceship that i just thought were so much fun so and it's um, quite low budget for a oh, space show as well so that's why they so can do all these things like we built a set so let's just do whatever because we can do so much here so let's but just it's do not it. shitty low budget you know it's not no, even it's, like bad sitcom, low budget. it's not even yeah. as bad as some of the doctor who's like it's pretty oh, yeah, solid yeah, for yeah. there's a couple of really disturbing ones like really fucking disturbing ones um that play with like aliens a little bit you don't see a lot of aliens in it but when you do they're fucking horrible like they're horrible mm. mind bendy creatures so um 
yeah, it was a, a great little show with a lot of ambition and no women, really, to be honest. <laughs> Not a feminist text. Um, but I don't know. It was a lovely other world or something. Maybe it, I, I, it's not a noir, it's a Western, <laughs> but it's uh, something I, I, I have a lot of room for. And I was delighted when I went through the 1980 thing. I was like, shit, Red Dwarf, huh? There we Kathleen's go. has been around that long. Year yeah. of my birth. Yeah. It feels like a mid nineties kind of thing. It has a lot of mid nineties energy. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I, I don't observe the later seasons whatsoever because again, mm. when technology gets better, stuff like Red Dwarf looks worse. So, and also the hologram aging doesn't help. No, it so, really doesn't. Yeah. I love and, and the Android, yeah. Oh yeah. And I love what they did with the hologram. The idea of this the, the, the again, it's it's convention and the idea that you can keep one person's life going on with the whole power of the ship but they can't touch anything is actually very poignant. Uh, if he wasn't characterized as such a massive prick. Like <laughs> Lister, who's our kind of protagonist, is he doesn't give a shit, man. He's a minor. He doesn't give a fuck, you know? He's like does, does his own thing, you know? He doesn't give a shit. He's like kind of a punk, I guess, sort of a crust punk. And uh, he's sort of just here to get paid and fucking go home. And his bunk mate is like anally retentive, fucking like rules, like obsessed with doing well. He's a bootlicker. But he also is completely stupid and really lazy and hasn't achieved anything in his own life. So he's a really rare kind of portrayal of the worst kind of person, which is someone with no accolade. Mm and no talent, but somebody who is very, has sort of these delusions of grandeur and obsessions with rules. So these are characters are actually kind of, I've watched the show a lot and I've read the book loads. So maybe I'm over reading it, but um, I think the characterizations are really compelling. You know what it's kind of like? If you flipped Blackadder so that Baldrick is oh, the main character instead in the future. God, it's That's kind of what the like characters that. is. I do you know what I think Blackadder and Red Dwarf are kind of shadow twins. Mm, you know, totally, yeah, yeah. I think they kind of belong to the same movement in television, which is smug dudes being smug. But it's also working class writers. Yeah, big time. Is what it is. Big time. Yes, yeah. you're right, and it's they're both very anti-authority. And uh, Red Dwarf is hugely anti-authority because it, like, again, it portrays the character who is into... His name is Raymer. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Like, they just went right out there and were like, his name's Raymer. Yeah. Deal with it. I, I, I never got that to know. There's another huge thing I only got today from something else. Uh, there's a really famous Looney Tunes cartoon uh, called Duck Amok. Yeah. Where the... the um, the, it's really metal where the, the animator keeps on animating obstacles for Daffy Duck to get over and like hitting them with stuff. And I only realized today that Duck Amok is like fuck him up. Hey! Oh, oh I know that one. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really I have famous that yes, It's really, it's really like mental. It's like correct to fuck him up. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That's amazing. I have seen yeah. that a million times. I just Googled mm -hmm. it and I'm like, I fucking had that on video. Yeah. I love Daffy Duck, man. Daffy Duck is, is my fucking Patronus. Like, very specific. I like him, too. He's pathologically oppositional. Mm. And I vibe with him. He is, he is a good boy. He's um, my favourite duck in the cartoon duck realm. Yeah, he's That's a top Yeah, yeah. He's definitely better than Donald. Yeah. Do you remember, like, when you made that, that comeback from, like, when you were, like, small and watched, like, Looney Tunes cartoons and it was just the funny cartoon on the television and you came back to it was, like, a nine or ten-year-old and you were, like... Oh no! This is actually really good and funny. This is like yeah, yeah really clever. My, my my quote unquote adult tastes are enjoying this as well. <laughs> Nuance, flavor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I do love that the I do love the Disney ducks though. When I was in Disney Sea, they had a department store which was McDuck's, and it was maybe the most exciting physical environment I've ever been in in my life. Really? And it was just crying after. Huh. A lot of stimuli at the one time. Oh, I was so overwhelmed, <laughs> man. I was so overwhelmed by all the ducks. Like, I do, I do love ducks. I love duck tails. I love tails. Oh, yeah, duck tails. Yeah. I love yeah. anything with a duck, man. Ducks are top notch. Uh, but Daffy is my number one guy, I think. I Daffy is like a lonesome narrator. Yeah, he's out in the about it. Yeah, he's just like paddling in his own canoe. Hey, <laughs> little paddles. Whereas Donald Duck just exists to uh, 
be antagonized by Mickey Max. And yeah, like, he's just a foil. It's sad. <laughs> yeah, but he's also very, very, very funny because he has the best voice in cartoons. Hundred percent. Like Country Mile, best voice in cartoons. He's good. Here we go. I think that's us. I think that's, I think that's us. Okay, I want ah. to uh, thank all our patrons. Like, oh, here we go. Our by panels. name, because it's really, really uh, amazing that all these people have supported us. So thank you to Alan Power, my old college roommate, uh, Amy Clarkin, Caroline Kennedy, my wife, Caroline O'Donoghue, our fifth Beatle, Carol, uh, Chloe Minish, Christina Fitzsimmons, David Kelly, Darville Clark, Denise O'Connor, Eamor Ryan, Alan Coyne. Yeah. Aaron Janosik, Jack Fennell, Gene Sutton, Jerry Lahan, my other college roommate, uh, Jess McIver, Karen Moynihan, Kiva Reardon, Myri Beacon, Mike Conway, Mikhail, Ona Einikon, Niall Oliver, Orla Henderson, Peter Cavanagh, Pray for Patrick, Sean McGowan, Tara Finn, and the Echo Chamber. They, oh, thank you, all of you, yeah. so, so, so much. Thank you, Paul. You're paying for our transcripts, you angels. Yeah. Thank you. Really it. Thank you to Dean McDonald for our artwork. Thank you, Dean. Yeah. 100 episodes. Yeah. Hi, Alan. You're here. Hi. <laughs> At the end of every episode, I always go, Hi, Alan. We miss you. Oh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I miss you guys too. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. Come, back, come back and do more with us, buddy. I will once yeah. international travel is all okay. I'll be there. <laughs> uh, thank you to, oh, thank you to Cassie. And tall tales. Thanks, Kathy. Um, yeah, thank you for everything, forever and always. Um, Thanks, Alan, for running this podcast for hundred. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, we're all on, you know where we are on Twitter and Instagram. Juvenalia, Sarah Griffsky, Alan, me, we're all there. We're all there. Um, yeah. We're online. You know. Thanks for listening. We have a Patreon. Yeah. Thank you so much, and we'll see you for another hundred episodes. Hey, um, cool hundred more. At least two more. We have those recorded. We'll see how we go after that. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.